Dzień dobry, Ohio, Divda, and all the rest of it. Yes, it's Andy Roberts here with the latest episode of the Nasty Pasty podcast. I've been away for a week in the wonderful city of Krakow in Poland, stuffing my face with Polish delicacies and barrels of cocktails. Having a break from the world of pastry goods and terrifying chillers has wet my appetite a little for even more, so I'm back today on Friday the 13th with a new episode. So today, as mentioned on my last episode, we're covering a rather polarising genre that will certainly not be for all viewers, either for the style or for the film's content. We're covering two Mondo films this time around, 1962's Mondo Carne and 1975's Savage Man, Savage Beast. Now, the Video Nasties list had two films of this genre on their pages, 1980's Faces of Death and 1978's Brutes and Savages, so it was a particular button-pusher for both the DPP and the BBFC, even today. So let's explore exactly what Mondo means, first of all, before going into the nitty-gritty of the films. Now, the word Mondo is the Italian word for world, an encapsulation of what really the genre initially aimed to be. Um, A Mondo film is a pseudo-documentary of sorts. It's a piece of exploitation which covers sensationalist and shocking topics, like other cultures' practices, sex, violence, or death. Often termed as shockumentary, some of the footage included in Mondo is genuine, such as animal cruelty or slaughter, or real human deaths, but a great deal is also staged, or at least edited in such a way as to suggest the footage is real. The first true instance of this type of film is 1962's Mondo Carne, which we're covering today, which was commercially successful despite the rather shocking subject matter. Other titles from Italy jumped on the bandwagon, copying the Mondo titling, despite the suffix being in English, with examples like Mondo Bizarro, Mondo Hollywood, or Mondo Infamy. Even some non-Mondo films released much later began to take advantage of the rather shocking spiring name, such as Jess Franco's Cannibals in 1980, which was released as Mondo Cannibale, or even Wes Craven's Last House on the Left, being released in Germany as Mondo Brutale. After the release of Mondo Carne, Gualtero Giacopetti, along with Franco Prosperi, the producers, went on to create some other examples due to the success of the original, including Mondo Carne 2 in 1963, and then Africa Adio, released in the US as Africa Blood and Guts, and in the UK as Farewell Africa in 1966. On the heels of the pair were brothers Angelo and Alfredo Castiglione, who made their own Mondo series focusing on African brutality and bizarre rights, starting with 1969's Secret Africa, and they continued through to the 1970s. Now, the cinematographer of both Prosperi and Giacopetti, uh, Antonio Clamati, he joined forces with Mario Mora in the mid-70s to start a Mondo series of her own beginning with the second film that we have today, 1975's Savage Man, Savage Beast. It notably depicted rather graphic violence that focused on humans, and this created a little bit of a shift in Mondo towards death and gore, which ultimately culminated in John Alan Schwartz's infamous Faces of Death in 1978, which became a rather prominent video nasty for its series of brutal deaths of both humans and animals. Clamati and Mora continued with This Violent World in 1976, and they finished with Sweet and Savage in 1983. Now, Schwartz's Faces of Death became a bit of a series on its own, with no less than six instalments altogether. Director Stelvio Massi made his own unofficial sequels, Mondo Carne 3 and 4, in the 80s, 
whilst Arthur Davis notably made Brutes and Savages in 1978, which was seized as a Section 3 title during the Nasty Scare. Another quite controversial Mondo film is 1982's The Killing of America, which actually remained unreleased in the US for around 30 years, only receiving a proper release in 2013 due to the still poignant and controversial subject matter of gun violence in America. Now, since the late 80s, the Mondo genre has since been replaced with viral videos on the internet, or compilations like Traces of Death or Faces of Gore, and their similar ilk, which actually contain more authentic and arguably more exploitative snuff footage from around the world. The effect of Mondo, though, is still felt in our everyday pop culture, with shock sites like Two Girls, One Cup, and The Lemon Party taking place of the real shocks in the films, websites like Best Gore giving everyone their fill of real-life gore, and even TV shows like I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here teasing us with images of people eating insects. There's also shockumentaries like Catfish, and actually reality TV in general. They all play with the idea of simulated reality. While a Mondo film is generally identified as such by the cinematic style, being very documentary-like in execution, complete with narration and sudden leaps in scene changes, the Mondo film does have some other identifiable tropes. Real or simulated animal violence and deaths are quite commonplace, as are staged and unsimulated violence or death against humans. And because of its rather guerrilla-style editing and shooting, it's sometimes hard to determine which footage is genuine barring the rather obvious animal harm or extremely contrived special effects. Frequent images include ritualistic practices, such as voodoo ceremonies, tribal cooking methods, hunting, sexual rituals, rites of adolescence and boyhood or womanhood, or just territorial fighting. In the animal kingdom, animal behaviour, food chains, mating habits, responses to environment or even rare species, they're all contenders for topics. There's also frequent cutaways to comparative behaviour in civilised society, such as our dating practices, drunken behaviour, our medical breakthroughs, or weird cult and religious behaviours. Another element of Mondo, though, is the narration, which is spoken alternatively between a mocking superiority to what happens on screen, a real sense of dedication to education, or just a rather tongue-in-cheek juxtaposition with what the horrors that we are seeing. The music is also grossly inappropriate at times, such as playing upbeat music during scenes of horrid violence, or sad ballads during actually rather normal-looking scenes. This does seem to be more of an Italian influence than anything else, which brings us to another interesting offshoot. The Italian cannibal film was heavily inspired by this mondo genre, featuring the same animal violence, the same exotic locales, same strange primitive cultures, and in Diodato's case with Cannibal Holocaust, the same disingenuous filmmakers who fake documentary footage. In some cannibal film examples, the Mondo genre was pretty much directly homaged, when the characters in it view found footage, which is found in both Diodato's film, as well as Joe D'Amato's film, Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals. Anyhow, now that we're up to speed with this particular genre of film, let's explore the first film of this week, Mondo Carne. While I will try to be as inexplicit as possible about the animal cruelty, I will have to briefly mention the scenes in question as they do form quite a large part of the material.
film begins with a dog being dragged into a dog pound with many barking dogs. The narrator explaining that the film may display scenes of cruelty, but it's not the journalist's job to sweeten the images in any way. The scene changes to Italy, where a memorial is held for actor Rudolf Valentino, whom the crowd revere with a Tutankhamun-like effigy, and then contrasts this with excited female fans of Rosano Brazzi, who tear his shirt off in sadistic glee. A scene in New Guinea shows us a tribe whose women take part in manhunting, a literal chase where they pursue a potential male mate, and are able to do with what they will when, they, when he's caught. Whilst in the West, a group of bikini-clad women tease some sailors on their battleship. A woman in one tribe suckles a newborn piglet after losing her own child, whilst another tribe in New Guinea fast for five years, and then have a three-day-long feast of pigs, feeding some of the scraps to their beloved pet dogs, and allowing their children to play football with the pigs' bladders. By contrast, at a pet cemetery in the West, dog owners mourn their pets, whilst their new pets obliviously urinate on the gravestones. In Taiwan, dogs are used as a local delicacy, whilst in Italy, chicks are painted with food colouring and gently warmed in an oven to dry the paint, colouring them various hues in order to sell in Easter eggs. In France, geese are being shown force-fed in the process of making foie gras, whilst in Japan, special masseurs are employed to, massa to massage wagyu beef cows to tenderise the meat and fatten them using bubbly beer. This is countered by a tribe whose most beautiful women have to eat tapioca in an effort to get fat, becoming desirable to their tribal chieftain. In the West, it's noted that women must lose weight in order to seem more attractive to mates. In Singapore, street customers are able to sample snakes, lizards and crocodiles as quite as normal street food, whilst in an unnamed restaurant in New York, they serve expensive delicacies such as fried ants, butterfly eggs, rattlesnake meat and muskrat meat. Snakes are a common delicacy in Singapore, being bought by your average housewife who selects her product carefully, whilst in Italy on St. Dominic's Day, non-venomous snakes are revered for their relation to a local legend. People in the area also cut themselves on purpose on Good Friday, wearing a crown of thorns, and they bleed on the doorsteps of their residents to symbolise Christ's suffering. In Australia, Lifesaver Girls, one of the country's Salvation Armies, perform a mock drowning and rescue in order to showcase their importance. At Bikini Atoll, nuclear pollution is affecting the local wildlife, such as causing birds to nest and lay eggs underground, fish to come in on land and dwell in trees, and a new mother turtle to lose her way back to the ocean, eventually passing away in the sun, emotionally hallucinating that she's finally reached the sea. Fishermen in Malaysia punish local sharks for one of their own being eaten by catching them and forcing them to eat sea urchins. On the island of Tiberia, red-robed monks safeguard the remains of their forefathers, whilst children regularly come in to preserve them by cleaning them. In Germany, people forget their mortality by drinking excessively, getting into quite horrendous stupors and hangovers by the morning. And in Japan, hungover men are massaged and bathed by women in a very special parlour. In China, the dead are covered in makeup for their funeral, and even given food and money to pass with them in the afterlife. Whilst in Singapore, there's a hotel for people who are dying, seconded upstairs to a quiet ward to pass away while their families are able to wait downstairs to enjoy food and entertainment. The West even attribute characteristics to their cars, stacking them graveyard-like in scrapyards until they're crushed, cubed, and reborn as a new car, or in one instance in France, a half-million-franc piece of art in a gallery. 
Artist Eve Klein used female models as paintbrushes on a large canvas, as well as a classic musician to express his love for the colour blue. In Hawaii, tourists are showered with kisses and lays, and treated to a ritualistic hula dance to celebrate their success and heritage, whilst in Nepal, Gurkha soldiers similarly celebrate their victories by dressing up as women and beheading bulls in a sacrificial ritual. This scene is then countered with the bull's revenge, in essence, a scene of matadors and Portuguese people being gored to death during a brutal bullfight. In Papua New Guinea, some of the tribes are being introduced to Western religions by missionaries, whilst nearby a landing strip in the same area, a tribe known as a cargo cult believe that airplanes are sent by their dead ancestors as a divine vehicle to see them, and constantly wait for the day when a plane will land on their own makeshift landing strip. The film ends as the tribe still pray, waiting for what will never come. But the country where pitiful dogs surpasses the limits of common imagination is the United States. We are in the famous Pasadena Dog Cemetery, not far from Los Angeles. It's one of those windy, sunless days in which the immense California sky takes on some of the sad hues of morning. It's an ideal day for accompanying the late Fifi to his final resting place. Today, any mention of death seems appropriately serene. And this place is so pathetic that even we could shed a tear on these little tombs of illustrious creatures. tombs of their dead, the dogs have an attitude that only human judgment would call irreverent. At the same time, the distressed behavior of the human beings could appear inexplicable only to a dog's judgment. The film that started the whole genre, Mondo Carne, was released in 1962, presumably to a storm of controversy, shock and horror, considering the explicit nature of some of the images, which play off like intermittently bizarre and then shocking vignettes. The film went into production around 1960, at the same time as the crew's other Mondo film, Women of the World, which mostly consisted of leftover footage omitted from Mondo Carne, and it was released rather quickly the same year to cash in on the success of Mondo Carne. Reams of travelogue footage were shot all over the world, such as Honolulu, Hawaii, uh, New York City, Bismarck Archipelago in Papua New Guinea, uh, Hamburg in Germany, Los Angeles, California, uh, Hong Kong, China, Rome, Italy, Macau, China, Sydney, Australia, the Marshall Islands, Nepal, Taipei City in Taiwan, Tokyo, Japan, Portugal, Pasadena, California. I mean, because of the surplus of material shot, the film is rather uniquely choppy in its editing, and it does resemble a sequence of countered images rather than a cohesive indictment or argument for the subject matter. This is rather typical, though, of what Mondo would become, however, but this is the first instance of such a style outside of legitimate documentaries. While it's hard to determine exactly what in the film is genuine, there are certain scenes which are just quite obviously staged. The shirt-tearing of actor Rosano Brazzi by Lust Driven Ladies is filmed from around four angles, ruining any sense of spontaneity. 
The same for the bikini model who tempts the sailors, which is so spontaneous that the film crew are able to film it from both vessels. One of the biggest examples, though, is actually straight away in the opening, in which a dog is led quite forcefully into a dog pound of some sort. The message on screen explains that the scenes are all real and have not been sweetened or altered in any way, only for the dog to be pushed into a cage with an obviously overdubbed squeal of pain. I wouldn't usually be so blasé about an animal being mistreated, but straight away you notice that it's quite sensationalist in the presentation of the film. A great number of scenes, however, have more social commentary, despite their authenticity or lack of. Clearly by some of the film scenes, we in the West find the idea of eating dogs, snakes or lizards rather off-putting and unacceptable, whereas in the East, they find the idea of eating rabbits or eels unacceptable. In some areas of the world, it's considered normal for women to gain weight in order to seem more attractive, whilst in developed countries, it tends to be the opposite. It's films like these that actually remind you of just how culturally dependent certain images are. Some things in this film would shock Western audiences, but not Eastern ones. And the reverse would be true, too. It also shows the huge gulf between animals and humans. We treasure our pets, sometimes more than our fellow men, and we treat our cars as objects of affection. Whilst animals simply function according to their nature, whether it's pissing on a grave, or goring an annoying human to death who's goaded him into a fury. The humans do surprise, though, too. One of the tribes inflates pig's bladders and plays football with it, which is completely outside the normal territory of that way of thinking. Perhaps this suggests that football is actually something that's more primitive in our instincts. While the film does have its shocking content, there are other emotions that one has while watching it. In some instances, it's humour. It's hard not to laugh when dogs are urinating on other dogs' gravestones, blissfully unaware of the context of their actions, especially when there's emotional people around mourning the loss of their pets. Another humorous moment is the tavern in Hamburg, where drunk Germans are making quite a fool of themselves. But another moment I can remember being endearing is the scene with the little chicks. I was expecting the worst, considering that the helpless things were covered in food colouring and then put into an oven. But as soon as they came out, it became clear that the oven was simply to dry the plumage. And they came out in varying colours, and they seemed quite happy. It was a relief, as a lot of the scenes in the film that involve animals do not get such star treatment, and it's rather hard to watch. Another scene which was quite hard to watch, and almost induced tears, really, was the scene on the bikini at Hull Beach. We're shown a female turtle who's just laid eggs, and she seeks to return to the sea, but she gets confused because of pollution, and heads inland instead of out to sea. It's painful to watch her fail on such a grand scale, and she carries on into the sunny sands, and she ultimately expires from exhaustion and heat, heartbreakingly flapping about, thinking that she's actually reached the ocean. While it's not necessarily cruel, it did remind me of the sort of thing you see on National Geographic and Planet Earth, and it was probably the most sad moment in the film for me. One scene I did enjoy, though, when I probably shouldn't, was the scene of the bulls getting their own back and goring a couple of people. I do detest the idea of bullfighting, and I find it most cruel to antagonise an animal in such a way, so to see the animal dish out its revenge on its own tormentors was rather therapeutic, to say the least. and way more sympathetic to the animal rather than the idiots who are locking it up and then teasing it until it's angry. I also don't like the UK tradition of the Grand National either, simply for the amount of horse casualties every year that are callously put down because of an injury or they're just outright killed during the race's, race's danger. 
Now, due to the film's nature, there's no real actors to speak of, but there are a couple of faces in it of note, one of which is Rosano Brazzi, the actor who is, quite frankly, sexually assaulted by women in the film's beginning. He'd later appear in the original version of The Italian Job and the conclusion to the Omen set of films, which was 1981's The Final Conflict with Sam Neill. Although not an actor, French nouveau realism artist Yves Klein is actually the artist that's using the women in the blue paint. He might be known as probably one of the first minimalist artists, those who usually paint a canvas one colour, that sort of thing. He actually tragically suffered a heart attack when he viewed Mondo Carney at the Cannes Film Festival in May of 1962, and he suffered two further heart attacks before finally succumbing in June. The directors of Mondo Carney were three men. Firstly, there was Paolo Cavara, who'd worked ad hoc in various projects as a cinematographer on Women of the World, and as a director on the later giallo picture The Black Belly of the Tarantula. Another was Gualterio Giacopetti, who also directed Women of the World, uh, Mondo Carne 2, Africa Blood and Guts, and Goodbye Uncle Tom, which were all Mondo films. Giacopetti was a rather odd person who, apart from helping the Allies in the invasion of Italy, he was a journalist and editor who was on the leading Italian magazine L'Espresso. He had been in trouble with the law, though, in various times, such as fooling around with underage girls in both Italy and once when he was in Hong Kong. But he was also arrested during the making of Africa Blood and Guts on suspicion of murder when he and Prospery filmed the execution of a Congolese rebel, the authorities believing that they'd personally solicited the murder for the purposes of filming it. He was acquitted, however, when he provided proof that they'd arrived prior to the execution being planned. And the last of the trio was Franco Prospery, who directed with the others, uh, Women of the World, Mondo Carne 2, Africa Blood and Guts, and Goodbye Uncle Tom, as well as the 1984 horror film Wild Beasts. Prospery also worked as a producer on Jess Franco's Cannibals, as well as a cinematographer on Women of the World and editor on Africa Blood and Guts. Now, Mondo Carne was also written by Guevara and Giacopetti too. An interesting, though tragic, footnote, though, to the making of Mondo Carne involves Giacopetti and Prospery, who in 1961, after shooting some footage in Las Vegas, got into a taxi with Giacopetti's previous girlfriend, British actress Belinda Lee. Now, the driver of the vehicle was speeding and ended up totaling the car, which instantly killed Lee and injured Giacopetti and Prospery in the process. When Giacopetti passed away in 2011, he expressed his wish to be buried next to her ashes at Campo Castillo Cemetery in Rome. Ritz Ortolani worked on the soundtrack, who's known, of course, from Diodato's Cannibal Holocaust. But he, of course, had a bunch of other works, especially in the Mondo genre too, like Brutes and Savages, This Violent World, Africa Blood and Guts, and Goodbye Uncle Tom. He also worked on other horror films like Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye, um, Madhouse, House on the Edge of the Park. He was also joined on Mondo Carne by Nino Oliviero, who'd reappeared for Mondo Carne 2, as well as 1997's Out to Sea and some episodes of Curve Your Enthusiasm. This pair does deserve a special mention, as believe it or not, the soundtrack, or more specifically the main theme of the movie, entitled More, was actually nominated for an Academy Award for Best Song, but unfortunately it lost out to Call Me Irresponsible from the film Papa's Delicate Collection. While the three directors were established cinematographers, Mondo Carney had Antonio Clamati, who we've heard of before as the director of The Green Inferno, or Against Nature, which we covered before. 
He's also directed the other film in this week, uh, Savage Men, Savage Beasts, so we will talk a bit more about him later on. Clamati, however, was assisted by Benito Frattari, who returned for both Mondo Carne 2 and Goodbye Uncle Tom. The film was produced by Giacopetti as well, and there was also Angelo Rizzoli, who'd produced La Dolce Vita, and he also helped uh, produce Africa Blood and Guts. Now, the film was rejected, unsurprisingly, when submitted to the UK cinemas in uh, 1962. It did pass Certificate X, however, the next year, in 1963, after considerable cuts totalling around 14 minutes, which omitted all the animal violence, as well as the scenes of Germans fighting whilst drunk, and also the goring of a man by the bulls. I would have been very shocked if it were otherwise, but Mondo Carney actually received no VHS release in the UK. I believe if it had, though, it would have been seized, especially if it was the uncut version. It did, however, have a PAL VHS release in both Spain and Germany, so determined collectors may have imported it, and it hasn't had a release in the UK since, and I imagine it would still fall foul of the BBFC's guidelines if submitted today, for its quite prominent animal cruelty scenes. It does, however, have an uncut release in the US and in other territories. So that was Mondo Carne. So let's get on to the next one straight away, which was Savage Man, Savage Beast. The film opens with a hunter from Patagonia hunting and shooting a stag in order to use it for food, whilst the next change counters this with an anti-hunting demonstration in Cape Cod. The next scene shows various animals hunting their own prey, such as a leopard catching an orangutan and a squirrel monkey being caught by an anaconda. We then see various tribes engaging in hunting of wild games, such as aborigines hunting marsupials with spears and also bats using boomerangs. And in the African savanna, tribes similarly hunt elephants, buffalo, and antelopes. We're then shown the religious connotations of the hunt, with the Aborigines burying their game in dust and soil to symbolically lay their spirit to rest before consuming it, while the Africans consume the blood of the animal while it is still warm, as a way to religiously mark it. In Burundi, two brothers are arrested for having killed and cannibalised their own family members, apparently in a religious rite to inherit their hunting skills through consumption. More hunting traditions are then displayed, one of which is the Kuru tribe in Africa, who find verges of grass in the plains and literally fertilise the land with their own sperm, believing that it's going to cause more animals to be born in order to be hunted. Another one is a French stag hunt, which is blessed by a mass due to the hunt's pagan origins. And another hunt, this time a fox hunt using hounds, is successful, 
and concludes with the usual fox being killed by dogs. On the next one, a conservation group called the Wild Fox Association intentionally sabotages the proceedings by lacing the hunters' drinks with laxatives and introducing a bitch in heat into a nearby field, causing the hunters to be caught short and abandon their horses, whilst the dogs flock towards the female hound, allowing the fox to escape safely and the hunters to become humiliated when they're forced to seek out their dogs. Other conservation efforts are shown, such as a group of Argentinian hunters catching a condor in order to donate it to a zoo, and various hunters subduing animals with morphine darting and tagging them so that they may study them for future conservation methods. Included in these animals are a grizzly bear, elephants, elephant seals, deer and white rhinos. Some of these animals end up in captivity in order to prevent them from becoming extinct, which is suggested to have removed their natural instincts. This is not to be, however, as we're shown footage of a tourist being mauled and devoured whilst on a safari walk by lions. On the Isle of Wight, demonstrators against hunting freely walk around naked and having sex, linking the idea of our loss of hunting traditions with the loss of strict rules on nakedness, as customs were stricter in our tribal days. It's also noted that a lot of the protesters are meat-eaters, meaning that they have been supported by the death of millions of animals themselves. We're then shown Humboldt penguins, who are unable to hunt because of their habitat being destroyed with pollution, and there's Eskimos who no longer hunt due to oil being discovered on their land, relegating all their hunting actions to mere recreation. We're then shown multiple instances of hunting recreation of men who worship the idea of owning a rifle as proof of their masculinity, which is interspersed with scenes of illegal elephant poaching. Due to poaching and their own hunting prowess, the Lobi tribe in Africa masturbate into bamboo rods and pour the semen into a local river with the hope that the animals will drink and bear offspring as a result. In Peru, machines measure the statistics of El Niño to determine good fishing conditions, and similarly, birds who prey on fish are tagged electronically under the wings to transmit valuable fishing data when they feed on local fish, whilst Kodiak bears rely solely on instinct in order to eat salmon when they travel upstream to spawn. More scenes of animals helping humans to hunt are displayed, such as attack falcons catching rabbits and pheasants, and cheetahs chasing and catching ostriches. Dogs are also used to hunt wild boars in Patagonia, as well as catching a puma that has savaged a flock of sheep. This is countered with images of dog pound workers who are catching stray dogs in the city, with the narrator claiming that the hunt is active in the city, but the dogs are now the new prey. Indios in the jungle also use dogs to hunt monkeys, but then we're shown one of the worst hunts of all, mercenaries who track down the indios and graphically torture, castrate and then decapitate them in revenge for the death of one of their workers. Orangutans are caught from the same location to be sold from a zoo, but the film ends as an ecologist living in the wild bonds with wolves in peaceful harmony as they walk together. Every year, at the beginning of the great hunting season, the Kuru warriors celebrate a rite of fertility and renewal rooted in mythology. In the wind that blows continuously over these lava hills, the hunters, who must be married and over 26 years old, pierce the earth with their spears. Each digs a hole among the woolly saxifrage plants, driving below the moss and the bryozoa to reach the rocks beneath, which for them is the womb of the earth. The Kurus believe they are fertilizing the earth by injecting their sperm into it. 
Once it is pregnant, the earth will bear animals to be hunted. Game for the Kurus is called Mayana. She is the daughter of earth and man and logically must be conceived before being killed. The impregnating of Mother Earth by her lovers is accompanied by intense mental concentration. At the moment of orgasm, these men must think of the animal that will be hunted. Savage Man, Savage Beast, known in Italy as Ultima Grida dalla Savana, which means Final Cry of the Savannah, was released in 1975, more than a decade after the initial Mondo Carne. During this time, Cavara, Giacopetti and Prospery had released Mondo Carne 2, Farewell Africa and Goodbye Uncle Tom, whilst the Casclioni brothers had started their film series with Secret Africa and Africa Uncensored. Now, these films, with the exception of Mondo Carne 2, had quite specific subjects that they were focused on, mainly on the African continent. Being Prospery and Giacopetti's cinematographer on their earlier work, director Antonio Clamati decided to return to the encyclopedic feel of the original Mondo Carne, and showcased customs from all the world over. The shoot had a wealth of locations, such as Alaska and New York in the USA, a Saba in Malaysia, uh, KwaZulu Natal in South Africa, Argentina, uh, uh, Argentina, France, Peru, Isle of Wight, Indonesia, Germany, and Australia. Compared to Mondo Carne, the overall theme of Savage Man, Savage Beast is hunting and man's relationship to that hunt. It has some more elements that would become synonymous with Mondo films, such as filming cinema verite style, in an almost found footage sort of way, which Diodato of Cannibal Holocaust fame would reuse for his movie. Some of the film's creative flares also include rather effective transition shots, such as the hand of a squirrel monkey, who's just been killed by an anaconda, fading into the hand of a warrior, or a crowd of protesters on the Isle of Wight suddenly becoming a crowd of penguins in the next scene. It also marks a bit of a turning point in Mondo for including much more graphic deaths of human beings, which led ultimately to the landmark of Faces of Death in 1978, which pretty much featured almost exclusively deaths rather than cultural customs. The film's scenes, like Giacopetti's and Prosperi's predecessor, juxtapose opposing scenes together in order to make statements about humanity's relationship to hunts. Some humans hunt for food, whilst other humans oppose the same hunting. Some tribes try to conserve animals in a fruitless ritual of, well, basically jizzing in the ground and spaffing in rivers to make animals more plentiful, whilst others catch and tag animals to study their habits and improve their chances of survival. Interestingly, this scene of dropping cum into a river, as well as the preceding dance scene, complete with floppy penises, is reused in Clamati's later film Sweet and Savage with a different context applied, which just showcases how staged some of these proceedings are. Some hunters will take a more direct approach and catch animals with the intent to sell them to zoos, where they will be in captivity, certainly, but they are going to be taken care of and more personal conservation efforts can be undertaken with them. Like all Mondo, however, some of the scenes are far too staged to be believed in. An example of this, despite me quite liking the spirit of it, is the Wild Fox Association scene. It's clearly staged just from the multiple angles that it's shot from and the general campness of proceedings. It's a shame, because although it's what is theoretically needed after the scene before it, in which a real fox hunt and the horrendous denouement is shown, the fact that it's clearly simulated does the real issue a little bit of a disservice. 
On a personal note, after viewing the aftermath of a fox hunt in this film, it's only cemented my feelings towards advocates of fox hunting here in the UK. This sick sadistic bastards. It also leads quite nicely into the next point about the film, which describes in lots of details humans' history of using other animals against each other. The film's subjects use dogs to hunt foxes, stags and pumas, sometimes with canine casualties, and they also use attack falcons to hunt rabbits and other birds. While it's reprehensible enough to bring other animals into our games, it's notable how humans take all the credit for the work of their own animals, with the animals only getting a meagre fraction of their earned bounty. It is, of course, the scenes of people hunting for sport that are the most revolting, such as the scenes of elephant poaching and also the fox hunting. The elephant poaching in particular is linked to the idea of masculinity, which is associated with owning and using a gun. While it's covered a little more coldly and directly in 1982's The Killing of America, the US does still have a gun problem, complicated by the American Constitution that specifies all citizens may bear a firearm. All too frequently is the ownership of a gun touted in the country as proof of patriotism and pride of the country, in a toxically masculine sort of way that everyone who doesn't have a gun is accused of being weak, cowardly, and even anti-American. Especially in recent times, this has developed into American tourists travelling abroad to hunt animals and take trophy pictures as some sort of smug victory, leading to a great deal of criticism back home and through social media. The characters in this film are no less disgraceful, and the film clearly indicates that that problem has been around for a long time. The film also tackles the idea of violence against our fellow man in the traditions of hunting. Mercenaries, for example, track down native Indios and brutally scalp and castrate them in revenge for the death of one of their own. The idea of mercenaries and bounty hunters are all rooted in the spirit of hunting, and they're just as questionable due to the non-militaristic nature of their work. The narrator explains that the mercenaries are happy with their work and show us their smiling faces, suggesting that man innately enjoys killing. This is certainly not true of everybody, of course, but sadism is actually a real thing, and some nasty people do enjoy inflicting pain and death. The people on screen, though, clearly don't. The scene is actually simulated despite some rather good uncredited special effects. It's quite realistically shot in that it's very found footage styled, and it has some characteristic jumpiness and scratchiness to the image, very reminiscent of what ended up in Cannibal Holocaust five years later. Another quite horrendous but effective scene is when we're told about animals in captivity, who are theorised to have lost their instinctual violence. It's proven wrong when we're shown a tourist called Pitt Durnitz, who gets out of his family's car during a safari and is torn apart and eaten by a pride of lions, his camera recording his final moments. The scene is within question as to whether it's faked, but it does horribly feel quite real, being extremely graphic and realistic in what the camera catches. Instead of the carnage being filmed from multiple angles or with a steady aim, the image bounces around as the one witness with a camera tries to focus on what's happening, the image becoming more atrocious with every time the camera goes back to it. Even the victim's camera only catches the lion as he advances upon lunging forward. The rest of it is incomprehensible. Similar to the realistic way in which the Blair Witch Project never showed the threat directly, as this is a kind of how it would be in real life, this animal attack sequence feels just a little too shaky to be simulated. If it is in fact staged, they've done a bloody good job, and I'd commend them for such a convincing scene. As it happens, I'm not quite sure which one it is. 
As with Mondo Carne, there's no real actors of note because of the nature of the film's style. But the director, Antonio Clamati, mentioned before as the cinematographer of Mondo Carne, worked in various capacities as a director, producer, writer and a cinematographer. Some of his projects include Africa Blood and Guts, Goodbye Uncle Tom, the next two instalments after Savage Man Savage Beast, which were This Violent World, and Sweet and Savage, and all of these together are commonly known as the Savage Trilogy. He also worked on The Green Inferno, which we've covered before, and also Nightmare Beach. Fellow director Mario Mora, he worked on This Violent World and Sweet and Savage with Clamati, as well as Mondo Carne 2, Black Belly of the Tarantula, Short Night of the Glass Dolls, Wild Beasts, which was directed by Franco Prosperi, uh, Diodato's Cut and Run, and also 1992's Beyond Justice with Rudger Hauer. Clamati and Mora pretty much did everything on this film, producing, editing, directing and writing. The music, however, was done by Carlo Savina, who'd worked on Barva's Lisa and the Devil, uh, The Godfather, and also the 1981 3D movie Coming At Ya. Assistant director Mario Gariba is also of note, as he did some uncredited work on Liliana Cavana's Night Porter, and also Mario Barva's long-undiscovered film 1974's Rabid Dogs. The film was released in Italy in 1975, and worldwide in 1976. It didn't perform particularly well in Europe, but it was quite a hit in Asia, where it was only outgrossed by Jaws. It was submitted to UK cinemas in 1976, where it received a whopping 10 minutes of cuts to all scenes of animal cruelty, the castration and the scalping of the Indio men, and also the scene of a man being savaged by lions. It didn't receive a subsequent VHS release, and mysteriously there's no actual BBFC data on the film, but this could be related, however, to BBFC censor James Furman, who took quite a personal objection to the film, calling it one of the most vile and objectionable films ever submitted to the BBFC. He even later used an uncut print to demonstrate to censorship advocates about the need for censorship in society. It did have an English VHS release in Australia, so it was possible to obtain if one tried quite hard, but it would have been pretty rare, if at all. It hasn't received a release in the UK since either, and like Mondo Carney, it would be subject to cuts if resubmitted, for the animal cruelty scenes alone. And that was Savage Man, Savage Beast. And it's the end of this week's episode. So thanks to everyone for listening to me waffle on. I know it can be boring. We're back next week as always. This time with a couple of films that I'm really looking forward to covering. We're covering two slimy invertebrates horror pictures that feature creepy crawlies covered in gloop that terrorise and kill humans through various methods. So get your sick bags ready as on the next episode we're covering Jeff Lieberman's Squirm 
and Wampicure Simon's Slugs, two gloriously gory and creepy horror films that are bound to be someone's favourites. But until then, keep eating pasties, everyone, and I'll see you next time on the Nasty Pasty Podcast. Adieu, farewell, good night, Vienna. <laughs>